Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's my privilege to have as my guest, Mark Allen Shelsky. Mark is the teaching elder at Bridge City Community Church in Milwaukee, Oregon. It's a faith community for sinners and misfits who love Jesus and hope to grow. In his own words, Mark bangs the drum for inside-out living, and he has the privilege of inviting people into a life of following Jesus and more. Besides being a pastor, Mark is the author of the book, Wisdom of Your Heart. In that book, Mark takes a deep dive into some of the transformations that happened in his own life as he learned to work from the inside out and work on that inner game and grow deep roots in God's grace. He's able to speak on issues of burnout, growth in our into the image of Christ, and he's also effective at talking about creativity and helping authors to bring the books out of their own hearts. You're going to love this conversation. Mark is very transparent, and I think you'll find this helpful for your own spiritual journey. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others, subscribe, and you can check out the resources mentioned in the show notes. And let me also remind you, if you're interested in Centering Prayer and other contemplative practices, check out my latest book, Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence Can Change Your Life. Let's jump into the interview. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. It's so great to have you as my guest today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. Can, can you share some of the key moments in your life and your spiritual journey in particular that led you to be a pastor, an author, and as a writing, and a writing coach? <laughs> uh, yeah, so how to do that without it being the whole life story, right? That's right, that's right. Um, uh, we, all, we all have reasons for the things that we do, and reasons are complex and varied, so I'd say probably the initial setup is that uh, I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad was a pastor. And um, so I'm sure there's some element of my, uh, my trajectory that came from that. Um, my uh, dad, who was the pastor, died unexpectedly when I was 11. It was sort of the defining trauma of my life that yeah. I spent uh, living in the shadow of for several decades before really digging in and understanding how it impacted me. Uh, and so that, of course, impacts my trajectory and how I see, you know, who I am in ministry. Um, I started uh, uh, high school and college, was not really connected to the church, was not really interested in ministry, started into um, architecture school, really enjoyed that uh, process. And then about halfway through had my um, sort of ministry calling experience that was, um, you know, sort of one of those. I'm very clear that something is happening here that is deep and mysterious and beyond me kind of moments. And it was unexpected because it wasn't the trajectory that I was on. Um, and so then that uh, I sort of took some time to test some things out, uh, worked in youth ministry kind of as a volunteer while I was continuing my architecture trajectory. And during the course of that, had some experiences that kind of confirmed this sense of direction. And so then I left architecture school, um, went into, uh, into school for theology, ministerial preparation, and uh, began that journey. And uh, when I graduated, um, started uh, working <clears throat> at quite a large church in Portland, Oregon, that within a year of me getting there uh, underwent a massive, brutal church split. Um, I'm, there were 13 people on staff when I came and today of those 13, I think there's two of us in ministry still. Um, and much of that fallout was related to that, to that church split. And, uh, so that formed me and my thinking about church and spiritual formation and what it means to, what it means to be a pastor um, got connected up with a church plant after that, um, that I have been at since Bridge City Community Church. Um, in the 23 years that I've been a part of Bridge City, Bridge City has been, I think, four different churches. Mm -hmm. um, I mean by that, um, a sizable shift both in the community, 
and a sizable shift in the ethos, like what we're about and where we're headed. And, you know, I, I played various roles, you know, I was youth pastor and then worship pastor and then administrative pastor. And, you know, then uh, later on became senior pastor. And then um, uh, at that point, life was full steam ahead, you know, all cylinders firing. And that's when I had a pretty significant emotional breakdown. Uh, the trauma of my childhood caught up with me and I didn't realize, um, you know, how much damage I was doing to myself, the people around me, mm-hmm. um, the way that I coped with sadness and grief was to press through and perform and make things happen and, and, uh, earn my place through, uh, you know, high performance, uh, perfectionism, really, um, making sure that what I did made me valuable to the people around me and what we did as a church made us valuable to the people who would come. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't really see how that was injuring people and um, essentially in, infantilizing their spiritual journey, wow, right? Because yeah. we were so focused, we were so focused on a great program that, you know, there wasn't a lot of space for people to explore or for people who weren't very good at things to try things and get better or for difficult questions or for space for pain and grief you know when you've got a 90 minute service and every minute is clocked out there's not space for what happens when someone has to lament you know and i didn't i just was not i wasn't malicious i wasn't trying to exclude those things i wasn't trying to be superficial i was trying to do what i thought honored god i was just unconscious to the way that this way of being was bad for my own soul and for the people that I was serving. And uh, so then to shorten a long process, um, you know, I, uh, I, I really got into a, a really awful corner, high, high functioning depression, where if you were not in my deepest inner circle, you would have no idea that anything was going wrong with me. But, you know, I would, I would come home at the end of the weekend and crash in bed and be un, not functional for four days and then mm-hmm. get up and by force of will, make it all happen again. And so, of course, that inauthenticity, it wasn't intended to be inauthenticity. Like I said, I was trying my hardest to do what I thought was right and what honored God and serve people well. But clearly it was inauthentic because I wasn't bringing the reality of my current experience to my community in any way. And, you know, that separation of, of the real um, created more and more pain until I kind of was in this place where I could see my life going off a cliff and I could see myself losing the things that mattered to me, uh, the people that mattered to me and um, didn't know what to do uh, because, you know, my tool set from my trauma has been work hard. Do you can do it give me a book. I'll learn how to do it. I learn fast. I care about results. I'll make it happen. It'll be good. You'll think, you'll think I'm an expert at it by the end of the week. Right. But when the problem is interior and when the problem has been masked over with performance or, or, uh, you know, a, a, um, I want to say workaholism, but that implies an addiction to work. And the problem isn't an addiction to work. The problem is that the work was a mask for other things right and and so if that's the problem you can't work your way out of that right like you can't put in more hours to solve the problem that you are already working too many hours when the reason you're working too many hours is because you don't have the space or the tools to attend to the pain that is happening inside and so um i had to stop and i was very very fortunate to have in my orbit, a couple of guys, both of who were former pastors who had gone through their own crash. One of whom had become a therapist many years before was a trauma therapist. One of whom had gone on to other things, but had done his work. He had done his own interior work. And both of those guys separately, you know, were able to say to me, um, the path you're on is the path of death and you will not get out of it on your own. So what do you want to do? And in very short summary, you know, the influence of those guys got me into therapy, therapy and a wall full of journals and, um, you know, a lot of deep work processing what happened in my story, 
the way that I had understood my dad's death, the way that I'd related to that, the world that I had formed, where my value was rooted in performance. And because my value was rooted in performance, I had to perform really well, which means I also then ruled out things that I wasn't very good at, you know? And so the way that I did ministry, the way that I built a church um, was inadvertently built around this, this um, sort of plan of self-protection. And so it was about a five, six year process of working through that very painfully uh, during the course of that time, um, maybe one of the biggest moments of grace was the leadership team of my church. When, when these things surfaced and we began to talk about them, the leadership team of my church saying to me, um, we really need to look at how we have been complicit in this. Mm which I, I expected, you know, the best possible outcome was you go on sabbatical and solve this problem. We love you. We'll see you in three months. You know, I was expecting to be fired, you know, but to have them say, um, you aren't the only one who caused this. We've been with you for years. We've been a part of these leadership structures. How did we contribute to this was unexpected. And so then that set up a different process where the leadership of my church began to evaluate who we are as a church and how our leadership works and what it means to be a healthy church. And that path resulted in major changes. It changed, it resulted in, you know, logistical changes like the bylaws changes changed. It resulted in moving from the senior pastor, staff, board of directors model to an eldership a plurality of elders model and all of the transition necessary to do that with integrity. So it was a massive change. Everything about the church changed because of this. And while that was happening, I was in my process of healing and um, eventually was, um, you know, made one of the elders. Um, one of the team of elders were co-equal uh, in, you know, in discussion, we have different portfolios of responsibility, but we make decisions together as a group. That is that group is very transparent to the body of the church. The church has, you know, a lot of input in how things go. And so what has happened over the course of time is that the church is much smaller. Um, the church is um, a lot messier. And the church and I are probably in the healthiest places spiritually that we've ever been. That was so good. And thanks for being so transparent. Just gets this conversation of such a rich be beginning. Uh, which, and so give me the, like the rough time frame. So like you have your book, a wisdom of the heart, where I, I guess that's some, some of the, your stories, the inspiration for that. What's how long after you kind of began to put things back together, were you able to start coming forward and like writing or were you able to, I know you've written, you, right, you're sure. a writer. So what's the, how long did it take you to yeah. kind of unpack and kind of understand what actually happened um, so that you can right. help others? But, yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So um I'll, I'll come at that two ways. First, The Wisdom of Your Heart. Um, that book came out in 2017. And so that book came out after I was fully through the mm -hmm. six years of therapy yeah. and back into a, you know, an accountable process with my church where, where what was happening in the church, the, the authenticity was returned, right? The what's really happening in my life and what we do together had come back into a healthy space. And at that point, writing for other people began to make sense. Yeah, uh, back, backing up from that, thinking of myself as a writer is actually something that came about as a result of the, the healing work in therapy. Um, because uh, I was not able to see myself accurately prior, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and it, yeah. took, it took someone outside my head to say, oh, I, when I hear you talk about the way you do your work, and the, you know, the way that you preach, the way that you prepare the materials that you create, it sounds like you've been writing for a long time, right? And I couldn't say I was a writer because that projected something that I, that didn't fit with my performance mindset, right? I can't say I'm a writer unless I'm a really good one. And how do you know if you're a really good writer, unless you've sold a bunch of books and I've never sold a book, so I can't right, be a right. good writer. So I can't, so I can't claim to be a writer, right? But this person pointing out you know, hey, the truth of the matter is you're writing three or 400,000 words a year in the course of your ministry, 
because writing has always been a part of how I process. It's how I, it's part of how I process spiritually. I'm a big user of journals. It's how I come to understand what I think. Uh, you know, even in my sermon preparation for 30 years, I would write a lot to get me toward the final, the final outcome of the sermon so that mm-hmm. I could be clear on my logic and my understanding and do the dots really connect and, you know, where, you know, all of that was part of my process, but I couldn't see myself as a writer. And so coming through therapy with other people looking in from the outside saying, you are a writer, it's okay for you to claim that. And part of being a writer then is sharing your writing with folks. How is that going to happen? And so then I began to be more intentional about my blogging. I began to write some small pieces. I wrote a small self-published book about core values that was just kind of a toe in the water of the idea of putting something together and getting it out there into the universe. Uh, and then developed, uh, you know, the, the material that became the wisdom of your heart, you know, was an evolving iteration, right? That began with back when I was in therapy and I was still, the church was still wanting me to be a part of the process. I came to a point of conviction that, because of where I was at, the only credibility I had, the only way that I could, that I could authentically speak the gospel was that I had to be absolutely honest about where I was. And, you know, I've, you know, I've got years of experience as a worship leader under my belt. I know how to manipulate a space. I know how to use the tools of programming and worship planning to create a certain emotional evocative sense. I know how to do those things, but what I had to do was not do those things. And that really, you know, that was painful to my performer self to be messy, you know, to step up and say, you know, the songs on the docket today are joyful songs and I can't authentically sing them today. I have to sing them as statements of faith and intention you know, well, that's not something people were used to hearing, you know, or to have the, the preacher say, you know, well, what this passage is talking about today, I don't, I don't viscerally experience it. I'm not in a place where this passage is making experiential sense to me. You know, I believe that God is good. I believe that God is present, but I can't tell you, I can't give you an illustration from my life that says I have this sorted. And that choice to be, to be authentic in that way in my leadership position was a watershed for me and for us in many ways. For the church, it was a watershed because it turned out that there was a whole bunch of people who, uh, this makes sense in retrospect, the way we had built the church, there was a whole bunch of people in retrospect who weren't coming to church to hear truth. They were coming to church to be, to feel hope and encouragement. Yeah. Right. Their their expectation of me and the other leaders was not for us to tell the truth. Their expectation was for us to stick to the script and they could leave 90 minutes later with their recharge. And so when we began to talk about mental illness and depression and that you can love Jesus and be depressed and that you can be a pastor for 20 years and be in therapy, uh, when we began to talk about those things, it very quickly segmented our congregation into two groups. Uh, one group was the people who weren't there for that. They're like, you know, you, we, we got to be somewhere where the leaders have their act together and you don't see us. And then the other group was people who were overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude that people in a position of spiritual leadership were telling the truth to them. And that there was space to be human and that there was space to not have the puzzle all put together. And that maybe as a community, we could do that for one another, right? For me to come up and say, as a pastor, I need you this week. I'm not strong this week. I can say these things that we believe by faith. I can say them by faith, but this week, my heart isn't in it. I need you to say those things back to me. And, and that, you know, that, was a lived experience of what I'd read years ago in Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, where he said explicitly, I need my Christian brother to speak to me the truth of the gospel, and he needs me to speak to him. 
so that we both can find healing. Mm -hmm. And many of the people in our church community, and I think this is true in American Christianity in general, aren't used to that. They want, they want the comfort of the power differential. They want to have leaders who have it all together, who look good, who have the answers, and they want to receive that, or at least know that they have those people in their community. That's a way we can feel proud of our church because we've got such a great team of leaders who are this wonderful way. But when the power differential was shifted and we were able to say, well, what makes me different? I have experience. You've asked me to pursue uh, the work of bringing the word to you, which means that I spend hours every week doing that, preparing. You've asked me to do that, but you've asked me to do that as a role, not an identity. And then what happens in our community is something that we build together. And some days you'll be strong and some days I'll be strong. And maybe that's how we'll fulfill Paul's uh, injunction to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so that changed the nature of ministry for me completely, that experience. And it changed the nature of our church. The people that find Bridge City beneficial are the people who understand or need, even if they can't articulate it, the space where there's room for their uh, unsolved puzzles. No, that was really powerful. And in some ways, you actually answered some of the questions I wanted to talk with you about. It's also risky. It's interesting. You know, you said your, your church divides into two pieces. Um, just out of curiosity, did, did you end up losing the part that wanted something different? Like they wanted to essentially almost live vicariously for through a pastor who obviously has his um, everything together, is fully sanctified or however you want to articulate <laughs> right, that. Right, right, right. Yeah, you, you know, because that, that has to be, that's destabilizing when you don't see that, if that's what your expectation is. Have you been able to keep some of those folks? I mean, was there, again, I don't want to say too yeah, much so, about your church, but just curious about how that ends up going forward in your ministry. Did you begin to track? more of these folks that appreciated that side of you? Yeah, I think it, I think it's a great question that is larger than our church. I think yeah, it's worth talking yeah. about because, because one of the things that people in ministry don't mostly don't know, I didn't know it. I wasn't, I was never taught it in my ministry preparation. It took my painful life experience and some wise mentors to come to understand it is that one of the ways that we are like God in the Genesis story, one of the ways that we are like God is that we create in our own image. Yeah. And so when the pastor in a church community or church leadership is operating in a place of emotional immaturity or spiritual immaturity or interior brokenness, it doesn't matter what the intentions are. It doesn't matter how well-intentioned, how godly, how committed that pastor is. The pastor will unconsciously build in his own image. That's part of your nature as a human. And so what, in my case, what that meant was my baggage was rooted in finding belonging through performance. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what kind of church did I build? I built a church that was high-performing. We had great programs. We had excellent top-notch music. We invested in, in children's ministry at a high and entertaining level, right? I built a church in my image. Well, what happens in America, churches opt in, people go to the churches that resonate with them. So what happens when you build a church that's about performance, who resonates with that? Well, consumers resonate with that. The people who want that kind of church are the people who want to be entertained, or cared for, uh, or um, you know, otherwise want to be served. I, a metaphor that I often use about the transition in our life is, is this. We used to be a chef restaurant. So, so chef restaurants are unique, they're special, people know about them because they're famous. You go to the, you go to the restaurant expecting a performance. The food is plated beautifully. It's presented to you by waiters who are top-notch and been highly trained. The whole experience from the very beginning to the end has been choreographed. You pay a lot of money for it. You have a wonderful experience. So we were, we were a chef restaurant. We are now a cooking school. Mm. At a cooking school, my job is not to uh, orchestrate the experience of a fine plate of food. My job is to teach you how to use your knives. And using knives is a little bit scary and risky, 
But if you learn how to use your knives, you can feed yourself and you can feed the people around you. And those two experiences have different constituencies. So the chef restaurant, the people who go to a chef restaurant want something different mm -hmm. than the people who go to a cooking school. So when you talk about, you know, did we lose the people in that first group? Well, all of them who were committed to the chef restaurant experience, we lost to other chef restaurant churches. Mm -hmm. Some of them were able to see through the guidance of the spirit, maybe through the authenticity that was that was demonstrated. I don't know. Some of them were able to see the possibility that a cooking school might actually be a better experience of their faith life than what they'd had before. Not many, but some. And then many people were like, yeah, we've been waiting for you to give us the knives all this time. Yeah, that's good. We've been asking for the knives. Like we, like we know we're not, it's not, we're not trying to take anything away from you. We know that you know how to use them. We know that you've been trained in cooking. We, we value all of that, but teach us, give us, let us try. Right. And in a cooking school, when the student is learning, the, the plates they make aren't going to be great to begin with. And so I had to, I had to very painfully let go of, give up, crucify mm -hmm. the part of me that needed excellent performance, right? It had to become okay for church to be messy and unresolved and sloppy, right? At the cooking school, we use paper plates because we don't have, we don't have time to do the dishes, you know, until we talk about plating, right? That's the difference. And there were people who didn't want paper plates. They wanted China. Well, right. if you're going to have China, you got to have people that are willing to, you've got to pay or have volunteers who are going to clean the China. You got to pay or have volunteers who are going to set the table, right? You got to pay or volunteers who are going to do all the prep cooking. In a cooking school, we do it together. And so the people who didn't want to do it together absolutely went someplace else. Yeah, yeah. So, and you used a phrase in some of your work, um, or maybe it's, it's it's catchphrase in all your work. I know it's prominent on your website about living inside out. So, I'm, I'm guessing you're actually been describing this the whole time that we've been having this conversation, essentially. So, what's the, I mean, that's clear why you're passionate about that, I guess. So, but what does it look like and feel like? How would a person know if they were living inside out? And being authentic in the way that you're talking, and I'm in part of a, a cooking school. I mean, I mean, beyond just the metaphor, how would you know that you're actually actively engaged yeah. in learning to cook? Um, well, let's talk about inside out living first before we go into talking about discipleship, which is the more traditional word for learning to cook, right? Um, so, inside out living, I think my sense is that we come to the realization in different ways based on the particular um, struggles our inner life has. Mm -hmm. So here's some possible kinds of clues, right? One of the big clues that you're not living an authentic inside out life is that other people's perception of you and your perception of you are wildly different, right? So for example, if you find that, if you hear, if you learn, that people are constantly walking on eggshells around you. So that was, that was a, a piece of feedback I got from church volunteers. Well, I didn't think I was scary. I didn't think I was asking anything excessive of people. I, I didn't like, aren't we all here on the same page, building the kingdom, doing God's work? Don't we all love this church? Like, why would you walk on eggshells around me? So, so my immature response would be to make it their problem. What about you makes me seem scary, right? A more mature response would be to listen, right? What, what are they experiencing that evokes that, mm -hmm. you know? And, and particularly if you get that feedback from more than one source, you know? And so now you can see there's a, there's a way you're showing up in the world that's different from how you think you are. Okay. And that was one of the most painful parts of my therapeutic process was over and over coming face to face with the realization 
that things I thought were true about me were only true in my imagination. They were true in the image I had constructed of myself, the person I intended to be. But when you looked at the objective facts of the kinds of conversations I had and the way that I interacted with people, those things were not more than aspirational. So, so that's, that's a big tell, right? If I'm living inside out authentically, people's experience of me, it's not, obviously it's never gonna be exactly the same, right? Because our interior world is vast. We all see ourselves in certain ways and not other out, people outside of us don't know the whole story. They never do. So th these are never gonna be one and the same, but they shouldn't be in completely different universes. Right, right. Right, like, like a, a, a family shouldn't say, yeah, dad is an angry person. And dad says, I'm not, what do you mean? I'm never angry, right? That, that kind of disorientation should not happen. That's a tell. What do you think about, I'm just curious. I mean, you, you, you frame it one way. And so like your experience was um, you had a higher view or, or at least you thought you were, let's just say holy, for example, and then other people were in, encountering you as angry. I can also imagine you have other people, I'm sure you've worked with them that have the opposite experience. All they see is their own brokenness and they can never take their eyes off of that. Whereas other people actually find them, you know, delightful, full of joy right, and yeah. holy, right? So um, yeah, it's the same, it's the same thing, right? Yeah, in that case, yeah. in that case, it's a person whose whose interior viewpoint has become for whatever reason uh, focused on weaknesses and sin, right? Which is good for us to acknowledge and know those things. But but that focus can become so overwhelming, it's impossible to see what other people see about you, right? And, and I think the thing that ties these two together is the necessity of real community, mm -hmm. right? It was other people who came to me and said, Mark, the path you're on is going to kill you. It's good. I didn't get there by myself. It was other people that walked with me on the path. And now, years later, it's other people who will say to me, wow, my experience of you is so different than it was when I first met you. Or observe wow. me in a pastoral experience where I'm interacting with someone in church. And they're like, man, that's just so different from how I expected that you would behave from what I knew before, right? That feedback, I'm not seeking it, right? It's not, I'm not creating something false on the outside, trying to manage an image, but to have people with an authentic community that I trust and that know me that can say that, you know, that's one of the markers. Um, another, another marker of a, of a inner life that's, that's not on track is um, the intensity of your negative emotional reactions. Mm. So here's a, a way I frame it with people is that if you're spending $100 worth of emotional energy on a $5 emotional problem, there's something there to evaluate. Um, so, uh, you know, my kid does something that's not what I want them to do, but it's not an egregious problem. It's just some violation of the order of the house or whatever. And I blow up. Okay, well, that blowing up has to do with something but it's probably actually not them, mm -hmm. you know? So there, now there's a disproportion between my emotional responses and the things that I'm responding to. That's another tell, right? And, and the trouble with evaluating your inner life is there's no window you can just open and look in and see it. You know, the only way to know the state of your inner life is through these tells, through these exterior uh, expressions, you know, what, you know, this last, you know, the last month where I've had this scare with uh, melanoma, you know, that was scary, it was difficult. I hate uncertainty. The yeah. idea that I might, the idea that I might have a disease that could kill me is terrifying. But if I'd had this experience 10 years ago, I would have been non-functional. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. Where now I'm able to sit with this reality I have some resources and some tools and some spiritual practices that allow me to both be present to that reality and to remain functional, you know, to be both sad and afraid and trusting, you know, these paradoxes. Um, but that came as a fruit of a lot of time tending the garden of my inner life. Okay. 
So talk a little bit now too, because uh, this has been super fascinating. I mean, how does this connect? In, uh, I mean, can you or draw the the, the the direct connections to your work with emotions, right? Because you could get feedback, and you've used anger as like as an example. You can get feedback of how people are responding to you, but how connect that with actually feeling on the inside and how learning to maybe feel emotions helps us as followers of Jesus or to detect burnout before it happens or all the different sorts of problems that inauthentic living will manifest over time. So what's the connection to our emotional life or your inner life? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a huge conversation that could be a couple of additional, uh, podcast episodes. Yeah, course, uh, but let me yeah. let me throw out a couple quick a couple quick thoughts. So the first thing that many of us in the church don't understand is that your emotions are not a separate component of your life experience. Mm-hmm. Your emotions are bodily experiences that inform mental moods that originate in your limbic system. Your limbic system filters every piece of data that comes into your brain from your whole life. Why is that important? Well, it's important because what it means is it is not possible as a human to have a conversation, to read a book, to read the Bible and interpret it, to hold a position on theology, to get in an argument with your wife, to be at a church board meeting and navigate a complicated discussion. It is not possible to do anything without that entire experience filtering through your limbic system. And what what comes then into your consciousness and what you feel in your body is determined by the health of the limbic system and the patterns the limbic system is used to. And that's all about emotional health and maturity. So it's every single aspect of your life filters through this, right? For For people like me, who would have said, you know, 15 years ago, I'm just not a very emotional guy. I'm not wired up that way. I get it. I get it. I understand. But the truth is, everything I see, experience, read, hear, filters through my limbic system. Yeah. It's absolutely central. Okay. So now, if we understand that that's the way the human brain works, then we need to think about what emotions are. So very simply put, Emotions, I think a a really good way to understand our emotions is to think about them in terms of the check engine light on the dashboard of your car. Uh, That light um, is there for a reason. Now, I don't like seeing that light go off because it almost always means uh, an inconvenience and possibly an expensive trip to the mechanic. Yeah. But the way that we deal with emotions in our society is equivalent to us saying, Well, I don't like the feelings I get when the check engine light goes on. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to put a piece of black duct tape over it. Problem solved, right? Like I'll never see it. I'll be driving along. It'll be fine. And of course, that's absurd, right? That leads to you being stuck on the side of the highway somewhere waiting for a tow truck. But that is how we in America and particularly in the, the modern Christian church relate to emotions. We say emotions are distraction. Emotions are maybe a temptation. Emotions are sort of a weaker, less sanctified way of processing information. Uh, Reason is more elevated, more mature, perhaps more godly. Well, all of those things are just putting, putting duct tape over the check engine light. And the check engine light is there for a reason. The designer of your car put it there on purpose to protect your car's functionality, which is the same as your limbic system. Your limbic system's job is to keep you alive. So God creates us and gives us this incredible intuitive system that allows us to perceive threat of danger in our world, that allows us to take stock of other people and their intentions toward us and gives us deep level feedback to understand if we're safe, if what we're we're seeing is worth moving toward, or if it's something we should move away from. Like that's all, that's all embedded in the limbic system. And so uh, dealing with the check engine light, learning to interpret the check engine light is an essential function of not just being a healthy human, but being, being a healthy Christian, right? If you believe God made us, then God made the limbic system. 
And if God made the limbic system, he made it for a reason. And if you aren't paying attention to that and understanding how it works, then what you're choosing to do is live your life without access to this very important source of information that God designed you to function with. Good, good. Let me let me ask you then. So, like when your work as a pastor, and I know you also work with authors, and I'm guessing you even you know do some coaching with people who struggle with these uh, with with uh, these types of things. What are some of your favorite questions that you know? And it's, again, we it's Holy Spirit is ultimately going to be working us, but helped people to crack people open, giving them permission to start feeling more deeply. Notice. I mean, I love that check engine light that you said. It's funny. I. Um, on my podcast, I did my, some of my key thoughts from last year and I sort of got, came up with that same kind of metaphors. Like we all need to figure out what our check engine lights are before we get into trouble. So I just love the way that you articulated uh, that as a, about our emotions, but what are some of the tools or, or questions that you introduce people to that want to open up more to feeling, to being all that God wants them to be, to living a more authentic life. Do you have any kind of go-to, you know, tools or just questions that you found help often? Yeah. So the way we experience and relate to emotions, and I think this is true for our whole inner life, is largely a collection of habits. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. And so what that means is there's not a quick fix right? Habits develop for a reason. We develop mm-hmm. habits because of a reward process, right? Something happens, we do a certain behavior, we react in a certain way, or we have an emotional response. I think a lot of people don't understand that emotional responses can be habitual, and they are very much. Um, and so you have, a, you have a certain response, and it works. It gets you what you need in the moment, and your brain is like, aha, good. And you do that repeatedly, it becomes a habit. And over time, Uh, the habit becomes so abstracted and invisible to you, it becomes part of your personality. So now I'm just an angry person, right? Where originally it was, I was responding with anger to certain kinds of, uh, to certain kinds of uh, uh, experiences, right? So because we're talking about habits, then how, how do you deal with habits that are not good for you? Well, um, understanding that they're a habit, noticing that, that it's a habit. So that's a big, that's a big step just teaching people to pay attention to their lives, um, to, to, to stop. That's part of it. How do you pay attention to your life? If you don't have slowness, Mm -hmm. if you don't have silence, if you don't have space, you know, if you, if you aren't sitting down in your life regularly to reflect on how you reacted and why you reacted and who you're becoming, there's no way for you to attend to these things. So you got to have, you got to have some space. Um, when you have that space, then what kind of questions do you ask? Well, I think it's about curiosity, right? Why, why did I have that reaction? Our normal response, we'll stick with anger since that's the one that we've talked about the most. Our normal response is to wonder about the person who made us mad, right? right? Why did they do what they did? Why are they the problem? And um, I, I don't say this to dismiss abuse or to justify bad behavior. Nope, those things need to be dealt with. But I need to be curious about my reaction. Mm. Why, why did I respond that way? Uh, especially if, like we talked about earlier, the response is disproportionate. Yes. Right. When I put on paper what happened and I look at it on paper, yeah, it makes sense that I would have been frustrated. That was a frustrating thing. It felt like a small violation, but I really blew up. You know, I threw something across the room. I burnt a relationship. Wow, why did I have that response? And that's going to then require that curiosity is going to require doing some archaeology. What in my story echoes with that experience? You know, what what did it bring up? Because this big stack of anger was too much for what happened, but it's there for a reason. So why? So why? What am I really responding to? And so that's where, you know, journaling, therapy and coaching and those kinds of tools can be helpful because it's very hard for the brain to solve the problem that's happening in the brain. You know, it needs somebody outside to reflect, to say, this is what I hear you saying. Is this what you mean? So that you can bring that back in. And I think that's another reason journaling is so effective because you can sort of externalize you can look at it in that external safe place and evaluate it. And your consciousness, your brain has the ability to step away from it for a moment, which is very hard to do when it's in an ongoing process. 
Hey, let me interrupt you just for a second on there, just out of curiosity. I'm not trying to get all your tricks out of out of you on the on the <laughs> podcast here, but when you say journaling, for example, do you help people? Do you, do you like think of a like a prayer of examine? Is there certain questions that you maybe you've personally found helpful that when you journal these every day, you you're you able yeah. to find your check engine lights? Yeah, like what'd be a couple of questions that if somebody said, "Hey, I want to start journaling so I can do what Mark's Pastor Mark's saying." Uh, what what would be a couple of questions maybe you write about? Sure. Um, so journaling, I think, is very helpful for inner life and spiritual growth for a couple for a couple reasons that mm-hmm. really have nothing to do with the specific questions. That's good. There's some good specific questions. There's some good specific questions, but I think the big benefit of journaling is baked into the process, and that's this: journaling requires slowness. Yeah, it's good. You have to go slower. Even I, I journal digitally. And so I'm using my iPad with a keyboard, but my typing speed is slower than my thinking speed. So even that distance slows me down. And that's that's necessary. The other thing that journaling does is it forces you to use particular words. Uh, it, this is not, I think a lot of people re, re, uh, don't want to journal because they don't think of themselves as writers. They think that journaling is a creative exercise. Nope, that's not what this is about. But when you journal, you have to choose words. And so it's a lot like, you know, maybe if you're a parent, you might have had this experience with a very young child who's really frustrated and they're trying to express to you what they need or want. And you say to them, use your words. And what you mean by that is pick, pick a word to explain, right? Mm-hmm. It might not be perfect, but try. I'll understand try give it give an attempt well that's what you're doing in journaling you're taking this mish mash mosh of experiences and feelings and moods and imaginations and anxieties and it's all floating around in there and you're coming down and picking a sentence of particular words and they might be the wrong words but that doesn't matter because even if they're the wrong words you'll read them and you'll be like oh no that's not it at all right and so those two things which are just built into the nature of journaling, that it slows you down and it forces you to pick particular words, those two things by themselves, even if you had no special questions, would help you. And then the matter of questions uh, comes up. And and I think the best questions are going to be contextual to the growth work you're doing. The Ignatian examine is excellent. Um, I mean, in the very simplest form, the examine is what happened in my life yesterday? Uh, why did I respond or choose the way that I did? And who is God inviting me to be? Like, those are not, that's not the words that Ignatius used, but that's sort of the, the, the you know, Campbell's condensed soup version of yes. a ancient, ancient, excellent practice, right? What happened yesterday? Why did I respond the way I did? Who is God calling me to be? Well, if you had just those three questions and even just a couple sentences, like I'm not saying you need a journal for an hour every day, right? But for you to stop and think about the key moments of your day, the fight I had with my spouse, that meeting I had at work where I had so much inner turmoil in my gut that I just, I had to go take a walk afterwards, right? Those key moments of your day where you can, bring those into God's presence, which I consider journaling to be a form of prayer, bring those into God's presence and just say, what happened? Let me articulate it. Not, not looking for, not looking for who to blame, not looking for, to figure out whose fault it was, but just objectively, what occurred? What did I do? Why did I respond the way that I did? Was my response proportionate or not? If it wasn't proportionate, what part was it? You know, why do I think that 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 happened and then who's god calling me to be here you know and then we think about jesus we think about the fruit of the spirit we think about uh the beatitudes we think about who we're called to be as people that live other-centered co-suffering love and we're like well i missed the mark there this isn't about you know flagellating yourself for your sinfulness it's just about acknowledging what's true you know in that moment i was more concerned about my reputation than i was about hearing this other person boy, that's not who I want to be, right? There's lots of ways that you can journal. And coincidentally, I don't think we even talked about this, but my next book is actually about this specifically and giving a very simple walkthrough for how to use journaling for inner life growth. 
What's the and timeline that, for that? Uh, is that coming out soon? Um, I'm getting the manuscripts back from beta readers on the 20th. So I get that the manuscript's done. It's gone out to the first round of beta readers. I'll get their input back on the 20th. Uh, it'll take me a couple of weeks to incorporate all of that. And then it will go out to editorial to be edited. And so I don't know exact, this is, this one is going to be self-published uh, probably. I'm still talking with a couple people, but I, 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 I want, I think I want this one to be self-published just because it gives me a lot more flexibility in how I use it and make mm -hmm. it available to people. Yeah. Um, uh, and so this year sometime, cool. 2022 we're talking I, about, I yeah, think, yeah. I think before, before summer would be great. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. 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 And, and I wanted to, before, I want to be fair to your time here too. Um, uh, uh, I wanted to also hear, and this is going to be kind of a hard shift at this point, but they're related still. You do a lot of work with authors and I know you do some writing retreats. I wanted you to have a chance to share a little bit about your yeah. work there. And, and when we met in our pre kind of pre-interview, you connected that specifically to the same themes that we're actually talking about the inner life, uh, yeah. feeling our emotions more. Can you just say a little bit about that role in the role of opening yourself up to growth and how that helps you as a writer and maybe how you coach writers to show up more sure. powerfully in print. And if you can do that without, you know, in a way that's uh, fair to your own time at this point. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I think the link between the two is this, right? That good writing, writing that moves the reader yeah. or that causes the reader to think in new ways, that writing will always have come from a deeply authentic place in the author. Yeah, it, it will be it will be writing that resonates deeply with what's true for them. And so that then says that the inner life of a writer is really the seedbed of great writing. And I didn't I didn't plan on that trajectory in my life. It just occurred to me myself. And then when I began writing and connecting with other writers and talking about, you know, lessons that we've learned and all of that, it just be, became more and more clear that good writing comes from good interior practice. They're deeply connected. And so when I work with writers, I mean, you know, I've been writing online for, uh, gosh, almost 20 years probably. And, you know, working now on my one, two, three, this is the, the journaling book will be my fourth book and, you know, written an awful lot for a long time. Um, the heart I can talk about technique I can talk about social media I can you know we can talk about all those things but none of those things matter as much as the the seedbed of your inner life okay. you know and so even when when I do the I do two writers weekends a year called the writers advance and um they came out of this desire for me a lot of writers events are very um learning based yes you go and yeah. you listen to you go and you listen to experts speak you get into breakout rooms where you learn the nuts and bolts of editing and the nuts and bolts of social media, you network a bunch, you hope to find an agent and pitch your book. You know, a lot of writers events have that sense to them. And what I was needing was a writer's event where I was encouraged to write. And so I tried it once and uh, several writer friends that I knew came and it was amazing. <laughs> And so I've done it twice a year ever since. And so what happens at these events is we eat good food, we encourage and hold each other gently accountable, and then we have long blocks of time where we write, and then we come back and we talk about what we're writing and the hurdles we're facing, and, and they're powerful. And what has happened, and is so surprising to me, because I don't, I don't market these events as spiritual events, uh, most of the people that come to them probably don't even know I'm a pastor. Mm -hmm. But what happens every single time is we end up doing deep interior spiritual work. I end up pastoring people because we're talking about the hurdles in their manuscript and, and why they're having such a hard time writing about a relationship that they had. And we go into that and talk about, well, what's unresolved in the relationship. And then you're talking about interior life stuff and off you go, you know? And so it's, it's been really surprising to me um, that that's where it, that that's where the, that's where the work is done. You know, we can, we can all learn how to use social media better, but if you are functioning from a place of broken or immature, uh, Im broken or immaturity, 
the way you use social media will be messed up. I mean, think about our conversation about building a church, right? We create in our own image. So if, however, if you are, the way you're living on social media is going to reflect your level of maturity, emotional health, spiritual growth. Same thing for how you, you know, how you relate to having a book contract. You know, I mean, if I, getting a book, getting a book contract for the wisdom of your heart was one of the most, in some ways, traumatic things I've ever been through. It peeled away stuff about my identity that I didn't even know was there. And that's all inner life stuff. Right. And so that's the heart. That's the heart of it. That's so good. That's really good. Well, I could keep asking you lots of questions. It's been so rich. So, and I, but I want, do want to um, honor your time and uh, appreciate you being on. Let me just end with the questions I like to ask all my guests, which are kind of fun. And you, you guess you sort of answered the, the next one, which is, which is your next book. But I'm curious if, if you had a chance to think about it. Is there a project that you're kind of afraid to write, work on, or it's like a dream project? If you could find time, you'd pull this together over the next 10 or 15 years? Yeah, the, the, the project that I have that's in that category, will it will be done more than in the next 10 or 15 years for sure, uh, but it has a lot of weight behind it. I feel, I don't feel up to the task. It gets, it's, it's gotten put off. It's, I have lots written, but it keeps getting put off because it's vulnerable. It attends to things that many in my extended Christian community don't want to talk about. Right. Um, and, uh, and it feels bigger than me. Like I'm not a professional theologian, right? I love study, but I don't have a PhD, you know, so it feels intimidating, but, but it is the, what it is, is it is the book that's going to lay out hopefully for my kids, for me, what is the heart of a Trinitarian, other-centered, co-suffering theology. How can we be Christians in a world where the church has burnt its witness to the ground mm. with bad behavior and factionalism and judgmentalism? How can we be Christians in a world where many of the social and cultural concerns of the church are irrelevant to the world without sort of retreating to a kind of monastic kind of Christianity? What does it look like to... Uh, to live out the witness of Jesus in a way that is in alignment with the Jesus we have in the gospels and the witness of the early church, but probably is going to feel uh, disorienting to many modern, uh, many modern Christians. Wow. So that's, that's the project. And I've got, I don't know, 60,000 words on it written and I've started and I've stopped and I've started and I've stopped and I've put it on pause to do other projects. And I'm in a graduate program right now. That's really helping me think through a lot of these things right now, but because, because it is most important to me, something I want my kids to have, you know, I'm thinking about it a lot, particularly coming through this melanoma scare, you know, where I'm thinking about the fact that, you know, I could get hit by a bus any day now you know, how often, how long do I have to make this declaration? I feel, I feel like it's important to get it done. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that. That sounds like a really powerful uh, book. Now being as, as transparent as you're comfortable being, I'm just curious, like what's a, what's your typical day look like for you in terms of what, what is like your rule of life or your rhythms that you use to keep you grounded spiritually? Yeah, great, for your great work? question. Yeah. Um, I do have a set of practices that are very important to me. One of the things that I've had to learn, and really it's been over the season of COVID that this lesson has rooted itself deeply in me, mm-hmm. is how to hold a rule of life flexibly. Yeah, it's good. Um, for much of my life, I knew that a rule of life was important, but I was enough of a perfectionist that if I couldn't do it exactly right the way I wanted to do it, it felt like wasted effort or wasted time and I would, you know, fall away or not do it or be frustrated, you know, and that's the worst ever is to sit down and to do your spiritual practice and come away frustrated, you know, like that's the, that's the thing you leave with, you know, so um, I uh, am the most uh, at risk in my family with potential long-term consequences of COVID. And so because of that, I've moved almost all of my work to my home space. And so I, I work from home and 
that's a benefit. But one of the costs that comes with that is that I'm then also the person on the home front that is most conveniently able to manage home things, you know, so keep the laundry moving forward, make sure the kids get to where they need to go, those kinds of things. And so moving out of my office at the church has also shifted, you know, where I used to sort of be able to leave the house at a certain time and manage my time exactly how I wanted. And since this shift, I've had to be able to learn how to hold my rule flexibly. So that's been a big deal. Um, I, uh, I journal daily. Um, I journal daily using um, as, as prompts for that space. Um, I uh, sort of rotate through using scripture, uh, using other inspirational books. Right now I'm using a book of poetry um, that a friend of mine who's a thoughtful pastor theologian wrote um, as kind of the key prompt that I read, I, I spend some time in silence. Um, you know, I uh, have some contemplative practices that I do that are um, short, you know, I'm not sitting around in silence for three hours, you know, but it's remarkable how costly silence for 10 minutes is if you've not done it for, for long, you know? And so some, some time in silence, some time reading, uh, my journal, like I said, is, is a form of prayer. So the whole practice is prayer, no matter how long it takes. Part of my journaling is uh, thinking like we talked about, about my interior life, where I'm at right now. Part of it is thinking about God's character and my sense of what God's calling me to. And then, of course, you know, I have intercessory prayer for the folks in my life and community and those kinds of things. And um, I, you know, my intention is that before the roller coaster of my day starts, that I do that practice every morning. I don't do it every morning. I used to feel really bad about not doing it every morning, but the season of COVID has taught me to um, to release that and uh, to go into the days where that's not available to me, um, not frustrated or bitter about it. And then I come back to it the next day. You know, the grace, gracious flexibility is the key so that I can come back the next day and not come back with like, oh, I missed five days. Now I really have to make up for it because that makes it unsustainable. Yes. You know, and so to be able to just come back to it, I believe that, you know, my theology is that God is present with me all the time anyway. So the practice isn't invoking God's presence. The practice isn't anything about my it's about my it's about my awareness it's about opening up my awareness to what god is up to to be present to stop to notice and um yeah i don't i don't i don't think i would have made it through this season without it it's good it's good a lot of wisdom there now the the fun question for me and a hard question for almost everybody that loves books if if other than the bible so we're going to not count the bible as one of your favorite okay, books though, of course it is so like what would be two or three books that have really shaped you uh personally spiritually um let's see um a book that was profoundly formational for me as I was reimagining what it meant to be a pastor as I was coming through that whole season I described earlier was under the unpredictable plant by Eugene Peterson mm. okay. um, it is a book the narrative of the book is about Jonah running oh. to Tarsus the meat of the book is about what is pastoral ministry in a culture that is consumed with performance and consumption and the first time i read it it was deeply offensive to me because i felt like he was telling me that everything i was doing was wrong but then when i came back to it um it proved to be one of the best mentors for me in terms of what i what i think is really effective god-honoring spirit-led ministry so that that one is that one's huge. Um, in terms of my inner life and spiritual practice, a little book by Greg Boyd called Present Perfect mm. is probably the book that I give out the most in my pastoral work. Mm. It's short. I think it's maybe 125, 150 pages. 
It is incredibly practical, doable. It is not obtuse for a book about, you know, like there's a million books over the span of 2000 years about Christian mystical and contemplative life. And some of them are deep, deep weeds. <laughs> and so it's easy to find a book that you hear recommended a lot and you go read it and you're like, I can't make heads or tails of this guy. But Greg's book, uh, Present Perfect, is um, it's very simple. It's doable. It includes simple practices. And consistently, people that I give it to tell me that has changed their spiritual life. That's great. You know, I've never heard of that book, so I'm going to check that out myself. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's it, it really he 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 brings us to the understanding that in our spiritual life, God, you know, God, depending on your theology and how you perceive things, you know, God is outside of or beyond or in some way above time. Mm -hmm. You are not. That means the only place your life and God's existence intersect is the one present moment. That's it. So in this one present moment right now, this is where you have access to God. And it starts with that and unfolds uh, both in terms of some ways to think about that and some practices to include in your life that can help you take notice and make sacred the one present moment. And man, I'll tell you what, if you just, if you could just engage and practice that that changes everything. Now, if folks want to find out more about you, uh, where can they find your books? Uh, where, what's the best place to connect with you and your ministry? Sure. All the things are in all the places, um, but I try really hard to make sure it's easy to find me. So if you go to my website, www.markallenshelsky.com, everything that I do on the internet can be found from there. So, you know, I write on the internet, there's blog there, there's links to my books, descriptions of them, there's some online courses that I've written, there's links off to my social media. So yeah, I'm busy online, but instead of giving you all of the online places, um, if you just go to my website, you can find your way to all of those things. Well, I thank you. I want to thank you very much for being my guest today. Uh, I really am grateful. I've, I've been a follow. I've followed you on Twitter for a long time. I always appreciated your perspectives and I uh, really appreciate the transparency and depth that you brought to the conversation and, and that you're modeling with it in your own congregation there of being, being completely real. I love that. And I think that really is the way forward. And you're like really almost the perfect uh, guest for my deep dive spirituality conversations podcast can honor you for following Jesus's call in your life and wish you many blessings. Thank you so much, Brian. And thank you everyone for listening all the way to the end of this week's episode. And until next time, live by faith, be known by love and be a voice of hope in the world. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. If you found this episode helpful, would you please share it with friends through your social media networks, as well as leaving a review to help other people find it? If you're interested in any of the resources mentioned, please check out the show notes. And let me again remind you, if you're interested in contemplative practices, my latest book, Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence, can change your life is now available in paperback or on Kindle. Recommend ordering it off of Amazon. If you want to do a large order, I would reach out directly to Paraclete Press. Ask for Sister Estelle, and you can get some deep discounts if you're interested in buying, say, any quantity over of at least three or more copies. You can get good discounts directly from Paraclete. Thank you so much for the privilege of serving you, and we'll see you next time.